If this is your first time at Burning Man, a particular welcome to you. And uh, we're delighted today to welcome as our visiting speaker, Mark O'Donoghue. Mark used to be a lawyer in the city. He then worked at St. Helens Bishopsgate for a number of years. And for the last five years, I think, has been vicar of Christchurch Kensington. And uh, we're delighted to welcome Mark here today. He is speaking from Daniel chapter 3, Faith in the Line of Fire. And we've had a series this term on contending for the faith. So we're going to be looking at Daniel in the lion's den. A fantastic passage of scripture. Um, Mark is married to uh, the lovely Claire, and they have three children, Kate, Charlie, and Jack. And uh, before Mark comes to speak to us, I'm going to pray and then read from the opening verses of Daniel chapter 3. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity as men to come away together and look at your word and to think a little bit about what it means to stand with you and for you, particularly when we're under fire. We pray for Mark as he comes to speak to us and as you've been speaking to him, so we pray that you would speak through him to us, that we'd be better equipped to live for you and stand for you. And we ask this for Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. So would you like to turn to Daniel chapter 3, Bibles uh, just in the seats behind you. Page 886. <coughs> King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 90 feet high and 9 feet wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, this is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Uh, well, a very warm uh, welcome. It's great to be with you this morning. Uh, do keep that passage open. We'll look at uh, the rest of it uh, together in a moment. I was uh, reading uh, the other day about 
the other election that takes place on the 5th of May this year, not uh, the election for uh, London Mayor, uh, but instead the election for 41 uh, police and crime commissioners. It reminded me of that police uh, cadets e exam. Uh, there was uh, one year, it, was just, it just had one question. Uh, pretend that you're a police cadet. Imagine you're sitting there at your desk, you're asked to turn your papers over, and this is the question you get to see whether you've got what it takes to be in the police force. You're in your uniform. You see smoke billowing from a house, so you go to investigate. As you approach, you notice a crowd gathering, and you discover that a family is trapped inside. However, as smoke billows across the road, uh, drivers are unable to see. And so, sadly, there's a four- or five-car pile-up. Then a car comes too fast around the corner, uh, swerves to avoid the pile-up, and rolls down the hill towards a fast-flowing river. Meanwhile, back at the pile-up, out of one of the cars leaps the most wanted criminal in the area and starts to make a run for it. What would you do? I wonder what you'd say to that question. Pretty tricky, isn't it? A good test of your priorities as a young police officer. Uh, the briefest answer I read went as follows. I would remove my uniform and mingle inobtrusively with the crowd. There is something of that temptation in every Christian, isn't there? When the going gets tough, there's that temptation just to kind of remove the Christian layer, remove the Christian uniform, and to mingle unobtrusively with the world around us. I don't know where you feel that pressure the most, perhaps at home with family, where perhaps it's hard standing out as a Christian bloke, perhaps in the office with colleagues, uh, the diversity culture rages around you. It's hard to be distinctive, uh, perhaps out socializing with friends. Uh, Daniel is the kind of book that's written to help us to keep going when the going gets tough, uh, to help us remain distinctive, salt and light, in an alien culture. Uh, you'll recall that it's written at the time of the exile. Daniel and others were exported forcibly from uh, Jerusalem, uh, to live in the empire of Babylon, a very alien culture. Uh, and yet if we'd read chap uh, chapters 1 and 2, we'd have seen they were able to be both a blessing to that city and yet remain distinctive because they keep holding to various key truths. They keep being told and remembering that God is the one who rules. Uh, Daniel reminds us that it's God who's the real king that it's his kingdom that will last forever, and therefore that encourages Christians uh, to stand. It's a book that we need to read, because every day uh, we're bombarded, aren't we, with messages that try and uh, make us doubt that truth, that make us think that perhaps it's a, a person or a nation or a, a philosophy that rules the day instead. So let's uh, have a look at Daniel 3 together. And uh, the first thing to notice is Nebuchadnezzar rejecting God's rule. I think it was uh, 2001, wasn't it, that uh, Lucian Freud uh, brought out that portrait of Her Majesty the Queen that sharply divided uh, the art critics of the UK. Uh, some described it as thought-provoking, psychologically penetrating. Uh, the Daily Telegraph said it was extraordinarily unflattering. Richard Morrison in the Times was even more blunt. He wrote, 
the chin has what can only be described as five o'clock shadow, and the neck would not disgrace a rugby prop forward. As we come to Daniel chapter 3, notice an equally unflattering portrait of Babylon's monarch Nebuchadnezzar. I take it the shock of chapter 3 isn't that Nebuchadnezzar wants people to do what he wants. If power corrupts, then as Lord Acton reminded us, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Now, that's not the shock. Nor is the shock that Nebuchadnezzar sets up an idol six times in those opening seven verses that Tim read. We're told that he sets up the golden statue. That's not the shock because that's the default human predicament, isn't it? It's G.K. Chesterton, wasn't it? He said that uh, when humans cease to believe in God, it's not that they believe in nothing. It's not that they enter a God-free vacuum. Now, Chesterton said we're, all, we're, we're prepared to almost believe in anything. Idolatry is the norm. It, it may not be a, a wooden statue. It may not be a golden statue. But we're prepared to, to serve and worship other things. And I take it that it isn't the shock for Nebuchadnezzar to call on all people to do that. It was so Gilbert and Sullivan, wasn't it? All those different categories of people had to come and bow down. No, that's not the shock. That's just good political pragmatism. That's how you build social cohesion. No, the big shock of chapter 3 is that it happens after chapter 2. If we'd had time to read it, we'd have seen Nebuchadnezzar uh, having God invade his world. And God breaks into Nebuchadnezzar's existence and he reveals to him that he is the real God. That Nebuchadnezzar, if you like, is, is merely a tenant and he's on an assured short hold tenancy. His reign isn't going to last forever. Nebuchadnezzar learns that uh, Daniel's God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. And that's how he ends chapter 2, declaring that truth. Now do you see the shock of chapter 3? He's just declared that Daniel's God, Yahweh, is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. And then he builds an enormous statue for people to bow down. I take it we're meant to notice this rejection of God's rule is utterly scandalous. Nebuchadnezzar builds a 90-foot-high statue out of gold. It would have been seen for miles around in the desert plains where he builds it. He's just had a dream about a statue where the head was gold, and now he builds a statue where the whole thing is made of gold. It smacks of defiance, doesn't it? It smacks of outright rebellion against the Lord God. In the dream, uh, the statue had a silver chest, bronze belly, and uh, legs of iron with feet of clay and iron mixed. The dream was God's way of telling Nebuchadnezzar that his time was up, that his kingdom would end and it would be replaced by another kingdom, which would in turn end and so on and so forth. This statue that Nebuchadnezzar builds is his attempt to say, my kingdom will not go. It's scandalous, isn't it? And it's stupid too. It goes right against what chapter 2 revealed about the real king of the world, that it's God, that he's the one to be worshipped and adored. Nebuchadnezzar acts as if he's God, and so he issues the order, doesn't he? Uh, the, the whole empire of Babylon must uh, engage in an elaborate game of musical statues uh, with a twist. Verses 4 and 5, when the music starts playing, everyone is to come and bow down and worship the statue. 
But unlike the the children's party favourite, this is no game, is it? Verse 6, life and death is at stake. And yet it's stupid, because Nebuchadnezzar isn't the real king. God is. Nebuchadnezzar is suffering from a, a bad case of spiritual amnesia. Look down to the end of, of verse 15, would you? How does, uh, how does uh, he put it? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? See, that's the hubris we're talking about this morning. That's the level of arrogance. It's both scandalous and stupid. That uh, rejection of God's rule is nothing new, is it? We've seen it throughout the centuries. I don't know if you've ever read Jonathan Glover's great book. Uh, You've got to have a strong stomach to read it, let me say. Uh, Humanity, a moral history of the 20th century. What's quite clear as you read this book is that when in the 19th century people tried to reject God, when they tried to reject an external moral force, well, they ended up in the 20th century reaping that with all the horrors of Nazism and communism. I think it was Brian Appleyard at the time the book came out wrote in his review of it that you couldn't say that Nietzsche and co. in the 19th century had led to the gas ovens. But that's the kind of thing that happens when you remove an external moral law, when you're left with that vacuum. We're not immune from it today, though, are we? Alistair Campbell's crass, we don't do God. Uh, Now, increasingly, autonomy, that desire to be a law unto ourselves, is the standard argument that gets trotted out in all of the ethical debates, whether it's euthanasia, abortion, whether it's sexuality debates. This arrogance of rejecting God's rule, rejecting God's word, isn't new, is it? I think what's more worrying for us this morning on a Thursday morning at seven whatever is wondering whether it could be true of us. Are we, are we immune from this temptation to reject God's rule? We're not about to go down to Sloan Square and erect a huge statue. Uh, John and Tim and, and others aren't, and Pat aren't going to encourage us all to meet there next week and bow down to it. But let's not kid ourselves. It's not that difficult, is it, to reject God's revelation that it's He, it's Him who who makes up the rules when it goes against what we want. One of the interesting things about doing lots of evangelistic events, uh, which I do, is that you meet people who've heard something of the gospel before. Uh, they're, they're not ignorant of it. They've heard something of the truth about God, and yet they've chosen to reject it. They can do that with a smile. They can do that in a very British middle-class way. And yet they've heard something, and they're keeping it at arm's length. I think it's true of us when the the way we fret about what's going to happen around the world in Iraq or Syria. We get anxious, don't we? We forget that God's on the throne. The way we panic as we read the newspaper about uh, uh, statistics about church decline in this country. We, we forget that God's in sovereign control. We panic. The way we store up more and more money here on earth. Uh, that can reveal a doubt that it's God who ultimately rules. Uh, we, we doubt that he could provide for us. We begin to buy into that prevailing materialism that says it's money that makes the world go round. I don't know about you, when I was in the city as a lawyer, 
for uh, six or seven years. It was just so easy to buy into the, the worldview around you that said, just downplay the Christian side of your life. Uh, be, be, be fearful of your reputation. That's the big one, isn't it? What other people might think of us. Have a greater concern. You could spiritualize it. Have a greater concern for the relationship with the person than your desire to point them to Christ. So let me ask you, where in your life are you tempted to reject God's rule? You might want to think about that afterwards. See, Nebuchadnezzar isn't far from any of us. Let's beware rejecting God's rule. So how do we do that? Well, two, two ways. Here's the first way. Uh, by remembering God's rule. Uh, verse 8. Some of the Babylonians, some of the Chaldeans come along and seize their moment to, to make life difficult for these Jewish immigrants. Uh, verse 8. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. And nothing new with racism is there. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You can hear the kind of creeping, can't you? Uh, you have issued a decree O king, that everyone who hears the sound of the instruments uh, must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever doesn't fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing, fiery furnace. Now hear the, hear the racism, but there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold uh, you have set up. Daniel isn't mentioned, is he? Uh, we're not told uh, why he isn't there. There's no hint at all that he's gone along with the command. Perhaps like Pat, he's just away on a, another holiday. Pat does seem to do well for holidays, doesn't he? Uh, I, I think I'm almost at the point of defriending him on Facebook. Uh, how a man goes from Jamaica to Israel to the ski slopes in, in what felt like three or four weeks is, is surprising to me. But perhaps Daniel's done that. Perhaps I think he's now calling it work. Perhaps Daniel's done that. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I think, are, are thrilling because they're ordinary blokes. It's not the superhero here. They're all shopped to the king. We're not told why. Perhaps it's jealousy that these immigrants have done so well in society. Verse 12, there are certain Jews. And Neb Nebuchadnezzar isn't used to that kind of insubordination, though, is he? Verse 13, in a furious rage, he orders the, the three guys to be brought before him. They're cross-examined, verse 14. Is it true? He's magnanimous. Did you notice in verse 15 he'll give them a second chance? Play my game of musical statues and all will be well. Granted, it's not much of a choice. Uh, worship the idol, breaking God's first uh, two commandments, or face the wrath of Nebuchadnezzar. Do you see how challenging it can be to remember God rules? Bow or burn. Uh, talk about Hobson's choice. Uh, they're facing death for their belief in God. It doesn't get more serious than that, does it? That instinct to survive is very strong amongst human beings. Uh, Robert Winston, in that series of his human instinct, said that of all the animal kingdom, mankind has the strongest sense of self-preservation and survival. We will do extraordinary things, he said, in order to survive. How tempting it must have been to bow down and save their life. How tempting 
to just add that statue into a smorgasbord of gods to worship. Uh, in, engage in a little bit of syncretism, a little bit of multi-faith worship. A bit, a bit like Winnie the Pooh when asked, would he prefer honey or condensed milk? And he asked for both. It's got a very contemporary ring, this temptation, doesn't it? But we live in a multicultural country. I, for one, think we'd be much poorer without the, the glorious diversity that you see in cities like London. But uh, government's attempts to hold all the, those kind of diverse beliefs together in some kind of big tent, uh, it's, you can understand the political pragmatism of it. But if we're to engage in that, we're not to downgrade the Lord Jesus Christ, are we? We're not to downgrade him to being merely one amongst many, even first among equals. He is utterly unique. He is God's king of God's world, whether our politicians or your human resources departments like it. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego were with us this morning. What idols might they identify in London? It's unlikely to be a gold statue. But it could be gold, couldn't it, or money, or the markets. I tend to see idols in London as varied as money, education, our children's future, broadly defined, property, pleasure, human intellect and intelligence. Which idols do we need to say, actually, I need to draw a line there? I need to take a stand It'll be very challenging to remember that God rules, but it's critical. It's absolutely critical. When in Babylon do as the Babylonians do, no, say Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They won't engage in idolatry. They won't blend in and be Babylonian if it means disobeying God. Look down to verse 16, would you, in these glorious verses. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego reply to the king. Imagine their knees must have been knocking. O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image you have set up. Aren't they great verses? Don't they make the hair stand up on the back of your neck? What courage, uh, what guts. They're faced with all of Nebuchadnezzar's imperial rage and they remember that it's God who rules. They're polite, they're respectful, but they're crystal clear, aren't they? It is God who is on the throne. Not this man, not his impressive statue, not with all of his political power or military might. These three men trust that it's God who's in charge. And even when all appearances would suggest that Nebuchadnezzar is the boss. Can I say that kind of clear Christian confidence in the king, in God, in Christ, is the only thing that will keep us from idolatry. You see, I could stand up here and encourage you not to engage in materialism. I could beat you up with all the perils of engaging in materialism. Much better, actually, to say, fix your eyes on Christ. Isn't he all that, all the more glorious than money and material pleasures? Isn't he all the more sufficient 
Isn't he enough for you? That'll keep you uh, sitting loose to the material things you've got. That'll keep you giving generously to gospel ministry rather than saving and storing, rather than paying off the mortgage, stockpiling money for the kids' future. It's trusting that God is in control and that he will keep his promises to care for us. It's that Christian confidence that will prevent us from buying into the, the, the prevailing hedonism of the 21st century, thinking we must experience every pleasure that the world can provide, even when God says we mustn't. It's only trusting that God wants the best for us. It's only trusting that God will give us all good things one day and waiting for them. Do you see, only clear confidence in God's power and God's promises will help us to resist that pressure to conform and to cave in. How do we avoid rejecting God's rule? We must remember that it's God who rules. But second, as we draw to a close, we must rely on God's rescue. Verse 19, <clears throat> we're getting to the, the denouement. Nebuchadnezzar is furious. He orders the oven whacked up to maximum. Uh, verse uh, uh, 20, he commands some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into, just in case they wouldn't be warm enough. Uh, they've got to make sure they're wearing enough. Thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the fiery furnace. Hot, hot, hot. So hot that it scorches and kills those who throw them in. But then did you notice two amazing things happen? Verse 24, King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. It's almost comedy, isn't it? At first, they're not dead, and now they seem to have grown another person. There's four of them in there. God's people learn that God is in charge. Nebuchadnezzar again learns that it's God who's in charge. He calls them out of the furnace, verse 26. And verse 27, do you see? The very same people, the very same people he ordered to bow down before his statue, now stand back in wonder, in amazement, uh, at the real God who rescues. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, the royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. They're utterly, utterly miraculous. It is a great picture of God's rescue, isn't it? Of God's deliverance. How much more that ought to be true of us. Who this individual was in the furnace, we're not told, whether it was an angel, whether it was a Christophany. But how much more for us when we know that we have a God who is with us, that no, from whose love nothing will separate us. When Christ himself promises before his glorious ascension that his spirit will indwell us and be with us even unto the end of the age. 
And notice will you Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's confidence wasn't in the here and now rescue, though. Did you notice that? Look back to verse 17. Notice where their confidence lies. It's in God's rule, not in God's rescue of them. Verse 17, God's rule means he can rescue them, they say. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us. Uh, God is able to rescue them. They know that God's committed to his promises. They know that God's powerful. They know that it's him who sits on the eternal throne. They've, they've got every confidence, like Abraham, to, to trust, to have faith that God can do what he's promised to do. But verse 18, here is genuine, gutsy gospel faith. Even if God doesn't act to save them from the furnace in the here and now, they are still utterly convinced that he will keep his promise, that he will rescue them, that they will be vindicated. How does Luther put it in that great hymn, Our God Stands Like a Fortress Rock? And though the world seems full of ill, with hungry demons prowling, Christ's victory is with us still. We need not fear their howling. The tyrants of this age strut briefly on the stage. Their sentence has been passed. We stand unharmed at last. A word from God destroys them. Brothers, please believe the book of Daniel, that God's people will be vindicated. We know how the story ends. God wins in the end. So never give up. Never give up. Don't bow down to the prevailing idols of our day. It is only that kind of confidence, isn't it, that God wins in the end that will enable us to stand firm. That Christ conquers. Chris Austin, the early church father, was on trial for his life before the emperor. The emperor threatened to banish him. This early church leader, aged, elderly, replied, you cannot banish me, for the whole world is my father's home. The emperor threatened him with execution. Chrysostom replied, you cannot, for my life is hid with Christ. Well, then we will dispossess you of your estate. You cannot, he said, I have not got any. All of my treasure is in heaven. Well, then we'll put you in solitary confinement, the emperor said. You cannot. For I have a divine friend from whom you can never separate me. I defy you, emperor. There is nothing you can do to harm me. You see, people with real faith, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, like Chrysostom, are fearless even in the face of death. Last time we went to, uh, as a family to Oxford for half term, we did all the tourist things. I dragged the kids around Blenheim, uh, waxed lyrical about the history of the Churchills. We spent a lazy afternoon in Christchurch Meadow, had a lovely lunch. But on Sunday after church, I took them to the Martyrs Memorial, where Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer, great men of God, were burned at the stake by Queen Mary. They died. They weren't saved in this life. They weren't rescued from the fire. And yet their confidence in God, you remember, remained undimmed to the end. Remember Latimer's great words? Be of good cheer, Ridley, and play the man. We shall, by God's grace, light such a candle in England as I trust will never be put out. 
How do we respond to the God who rules and rescues? Oliver Sacks is a professor in clinical neurology, and his most famous book is The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. It's a series of hilarious and bizarre medical case studies. My favorite is Mr. McGregor. Mr. McGregor was elderly, but alert, healthy, and well. Uh, Apart from the fact that unknown to Mr. McGregor, he walked at 20 degrees to the vertical. Had never been aware of it. Uh, The chapter tells of the shock as he discovered this, as uh, Dr. Sachs recorded him walking around and played it back. And the chapter tells of the good doctor's good solution. He, uh, He took a pair of spectacles and built a spirit level across the top of them. So that as Mr. McGregor walked around, he could check the spirit level and straighten up his walk. Daniel is the kind of book that does that for us. Spiritually, not physically, not visibly. It straightens up our thinking. We're in a world where we're encouraged to believe all manner of things are in control. Where we're always, every day, encouraged to doubt that it's God who's in control. That it's Christ who sits on the throne. And Daniel comes along and Daniel says, God rules. His kingdom will last forever. Nothing can prevent Christ being the king. And so stand. Stand for him. I've got some questions for you to talk about. I'm happy to take questions from you, but I've got some questions for you to talk about. Tim, what do you want to do? Questions for you around your tables. Where Where are we tempted today to doubt that God rules and God rescues. Okay, question one, where are we tempted to doubt this truth? Okay, how does Daniel 3 help us? How can we help one another? Where are we tempted to doubt it? How does Daniel 3 help us? How can we help one another? The question you might want to reflect on on your own is where might you need to take a stand this week? Over to you. Gentlemen, we're going to finish in two or three minutes, but so can I encourage you, if you haven't yet prayed for one another, to do, to do so, spend the last couple of minutes in prayer for one another. Gentlemen, perhaps we can just break there. Uh, a very big thank you to, to Mark. Thank you so much for getting up at crack of dawn to come and help us get our, our, um, our spirit level right. I love that picture of uh, getting the... the the sort of spiritual spirit level. Uh, And what a great way to start the day. Uh, We do take a break now over Easter. I'm not 100% sure when we restart, but uh, I'm sure we'll be getting those emails in our inbox. If you're new and you're you're not on an email circulation about Burning Man and would like to to be so, uh, then please um, give me your contact details and we'll make sure that you, you hear about our next exciting term at Burning Man. Thank you so much for coming. Uh, There's more croissants and coffee, so don't rush away if you don't have to. But uh, thank you for joining us today, and thank you, Mark.